Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Elias Jashan. Elias is a Palestinian, Lebanese, Australian journalist and editor. A former editor of Star Observer, Australia's longest-running LGBTQ plus outlet, he writes for, amongst others, The Guardian and The New Arab. His memoir, Coming Out Palestinian, was anthologized in Arab Australian Other, Stories on Race and Identity, published by Picador. I last had Elias on the podcast in July to talk about his latest project, editing the anthology This Arab is Queer, published by Saki. It's a book I highly recommend. Today we're going to talk about the power of language, the power of culture, to challenge repression and intolerance. Elias, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Can we begin with the terrible earthquake in Syria and Turkey? Dalal Yudikat, the Palestinian academic and writer, and I'm proud to say an Arab Digest podcast guest, uh, she tweeted, can't help it, the traumatic scenes under the rubble from Syria and Turkey throw back to Gaza 2021. Some human disasters are God's will, others are human made. Emotions and conflicting times are inevitable. We are humans at the end of the day. Tribe mentality shall destroy us all. That linking of one tragedy with another, the earthquakes with the tragedy of the Palestinian people, the disasters caused by humans and the ones that are God's will, conflicting emotions, and the danger of tribal mentality, the Lal's packed a lot into a very few words. Her tweet hit me right between the eyes. But I'm wondering, Elias, how, how it strikes you? Um, I think the main way it strikes me is that, it's, I mean, it is a little bit close to home for me, obviously, um, because my maternal grandmother is ethnically Syrian. Uh, she was ousted from Turkey at the age of about eight or something around the time of the when the young Turks were um, taking over and there was a nationalist, there was a nationalist wave and, she, and they escaped to Lebanon shortly after the Armenian genocide and what have you. So, um, so it is a little bit close to home in that sense. And had my grandmother stayed in what is modern day Turkey, the village that she's from is Mersin, which is now part of Turkey. But back then it was very ethnically mixed. She could well well have been stuck in the middle of this um, earthquake disaster zone because Mersin is quite, is quite close to Iskandarun and Gaziantep and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, I know it's rather tenuous, but even so, like, you know, having I've got some family in Lebanon and they felt the tremors in Tripoli. And uh, thankfully, there was no damage for them. But it was just like, it's just trauma after trauma after trauma. And it's just small things like this can be just very triggering in so many ways. I can only begin to imagine what it feels like for people there who've experienced all this trauma growing up, like in Lebanon, that experienced the civil war and Israel bombing and the Israeli uh, drones that constantly fly over Lebanon. And, um, and in Syria, it was no secret that they had 12 years of civil war from you know, insurgents, from ISIS, from rebels, from Assad and Putin uh, funding Assad with his bombing campaigns of his own civilians. So this earthquake is just like, it, many people may have thought it was just another bombing campaign, you know. It's, uh, and so it's just triggering in, in fact in so many ways. I think this is why it, it probably hits close to home for people in Gaza as well, because it was only just recently, in 2021, as Dilal said, that you know the, the Gaza was bombed so relentlessly by the Israeli military force 
So um, just and just seeing people being pulled out of the rubble and hoping for survivors and stuff. It's just like a constant cycle, whether it's man-made or whether it's natural disaster. This is constant cycle of trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And in some ways, that's what, unfortunately, uh, but it is a bit of a bittersweet thing as well, that this is what connects the region. There's all this trauma and there's, there's different different reasons for it. But just seeing this, that scene of the rubble and people being pulled out, it's just something that is just, just a common thread throughout the whole thing, whether it's man-made or natural disaster. So yeah, I think that's how it struck me. I think she was just trying to articulate this this idea of trauma upon trauma and how this, this is what connects everyone in the region. But at the same time, I, I, I don't know... Personally, I don't know what she means exactly by uh, tribe mentality. If she meant, if she thinks tribe mentality in the sense that, you know, us versus them, as in like uh, the way the West is reacting and responding to the disaster zone, then sure, that is, I do agree with that because we don't, we, I think this, this is a natural disaster. This is no, there's no politics involved in this at all. So having this us versus them mentality, this orientalist mindset, looking at the, what's happened in Turkey and Syria, is it's just something that we just can't afford to do right now. We we so many thousands and thousands of people need rescuing right now. Whether they're where how they're politically affiliated does not matter at all. Every human life matters, and um, that's how I interpret the tribe mentality part of her tweet. Because right now it just it just it does just seem like unfortunately all the people from that region and their relatives and the diaspora doing all the heavy lifting and raising awareness and in and, and really tr driving at home, making sure it stays in the headlines. And this is purely anecdotal, but from my looking at my timeline on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, I don't see a lot of white people, or a lot of Westerners talking about the earthquakes. It's like they're just like in their mind, they think it's normal. But, you know, these earthquakes, why are they a natural disaster? But it's, this is a natural disaster. It's not a war and it's not a, it's not. So having war in Syria is not normal. Having famine in Yemen is not normal. This economic disaster in, in Lebanon is not normal. So oh, and the Gaza bombings are not normal. But because they happen so often, and these scenes just look so similar to what previous scenes, all these man-made disasters were, it is unfortunately not surprising to me to see that there, there, there is this us versus them mentality coming up in the West. And... Um, so yeah, in, in that sense, I do agree with Delal in that this tribe mentality shall destroy us because we, ha mm -hmm. we have to, we really have to be united at this during this time. Yeah, yeah, this idea that uh, coming together and also the idea that, you know, there's a kind of numbness, yeah, yeah. a kind of numbness that that, that creeps yeah. in as well. Um, I, the other thought for me too is, of course, the Beirut uh, port disaster. And and out for people in Beirut, I mean, very similar images, aren't they, of destroyed yeah, of course, buildings? Yeah, of course, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, the, the Beirut port disaster was man-made, and that was all down on the politicians and the ruling class, and they still haven't been persecuted um, or trialed or brought to justice. But that's another discussion for another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but speaking of tweets, uh, let me ask you about another tweet, one of yours that's just from a few days ago. I honestly don't think the issue with Israelis is whether they identify as Israeli. The bigger cue is if they acknowledge they are settlers. It doesn't matter where they live in Palestine, Zionist or anti-Zionist, born there or immigrated there, they are settlers. No ifs, no buts. Now, looking at the current situation, Elias, with this most extreme pro-settler regime that Netanyahu has pulled together, what do you believe needs to happen to halt the further colonization of Palestine? Um. 
I think the first thing that needs to happen is that they need to stop these illegal settlements being built in the West Bank, uh, first and foremost. The state of Israel is currently flouting international law by building and allowing for these settlements to be built and expanded across the West Bank. So that's the first thing they need to do, is to stop that. But they are they're just so much that the state of Israel is giving so much impunity and the government there just, just treats the UN with contempt and international law with contempt. So it's going to be a hard thing to sort of get them to stop, um, especially with a lot of far-right elements within the new Netanyahu government. So that's, that's the first thing I think that needs to be done, and that's the bare minimum. But also I think what they need to sort of, sort of bring a halt to all these, to allowing... I think the first thing, I think what really bugs me is how, and it's really unfair, how anyone around the world, whether they were, no matter where they were born, if they knock on the Israeli embassy door or whatever, or consulate general, wherever they live, and just say, look, I'm Jewish, and he's documented to prove that I'm Jewish, they automatically get given residency in Israel. It's that simple. Where someone like me, who's the son of a Palestinian, who was born in Palestine, I do not have that right at all. It's just, just purely based on the fact because I'm not Jewish. And um, I, 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 for me, that just that just shows there's a lot of, there's a stark disparity, there's a stark unfairness there. Why is it that I don't have a right to to live there just because of my ethnicity? You know, and uh, it doesn't really matter about religion. Like, and the Zionism is built on the idea that weaponizes the identity of Judaism to benefit the state of Israel. Anyway, I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. So I think that I think they just that that whole immigration thing about based on your Jewish identity also needs to, is the next thing that needs to stop. And the next thing, they, 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 the third step is that they have to give right of return for Palestinians to be able to go back. Sure, I can easily go back on my Australian passport as a tourist, but that's different to returning. You know, I can go. Back, there's a difference between visiting and returning. So I, at the moment, I just do not have right of return. I do not have uh, any claim to the land that my my family had in Yaffa, and you know, unfortunately, that land had been raised and built over by park. So yeah, it's just very it's a it's a stark disparity there, and that sort of needs to stop. Um, I think they're the first they're the, they're the first bare minimum three things that needs to happen. But I think within the country itself. Within among Israeli citizens, this discussion about what acknowledging they are settlers needs to happen as well, because this is already happening in other countries where that are set, uh, settler colonial countries. For example, Australia, where I'm from, and I'm sure there's a similar thing happening in Canada and America and all over Latin America as well. But in Australia, at least where I'm from, there's a growing, growing awareness about people who live in Australia live on stolen indigenous land, and it's been like that for more than 200 years. So it's not 75 years like the state of Israel. You know, and even me, myself, even though I was born in Australia, I do acknowledge that I grew up on stolen land. I do acknowledge that I was a settler living on a stolen indigenous land. So, and having that awareness just is just the bare minimum you can do to show solidarity. It's what you do with that knowledge that makes that matters. So people might get really offended with the idea of being called settlers, and won't do anything about it. And that's just, that's really more telling about them than someone who acknowledges that they're settlers and tries to do something about it, tries to undo the damage that's already been done or tries to bring about justice and equity in some way. So, yeah, I think they're just two parallel things that need to happen. One is like the legal statutory sort of side and one is like the civil society thing within Israel itself that needs to happen. Because at the end of the day, Zionism is just a colonial 
it's just a colonial project. It's a postmodern or post-colonial, whatever you want to call it, or any of those academic buzzwords. It's the 20th century colonial uh, project that's still happening now in the 21st century. And mm. uh, colonialism is a thing, should be a thing of the past. It shouldn't be a thing that's mm. happening today still. That's interesting thought, Elias. Yeah, saying to Israelis, look, take ownership. Take ownership of the fact that you are on land that was stolen from the Palestinians. Um, let me ask you, though, about the power of the written word. Uh, you're a journalist, you're a writer, you've edited a, a marvelous uh, collection, This Arab is Queer. How effective is the written word in confronting directly or, or subversively repression and intolerance? Can the written word rebut hard force? Um. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we all know that famous saying about, you know, how the pen is the sword or something like that. So that's probably not the right way to say it. Um, but, you know, right, that, mightier uh, than the sword. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. So I do believe in that. And that's something I was taught when I um, was one of the reasons why I got into journalism in the first place in my career, because I do feel like writing is more powerful than force um, and violence. I mean, we only just have to look at the famous Palestinian journalist and author, Hassan Ganafani, who was assassinated by the, by Mossad in 19, uh, 1972, I think. It was before the Lebanese Civil War and it was in the early 70s sometime. There um, was, was a bomb implanted in, in his car while he was living in Beirut and he and his one of his nieces um, were murdered because Mossad admitted later that they implanted that bomb. Now, uh, Hassan Kanafani is many people regard him as a terrorist because he was part of this communist uh, Marxist group called the PFLP. But even though he never carried out any act of violence, he just happened to be a member and he was the press release, he was the PR person. So he did, he did all the press releases and he was the media man for the for the group. Uh, and, you know, that's the, we can talk about the politics of this group uh, for another time, but I think what I'm trying to say is that because Hassan spoke English fluently and he articulated the colonialism project of Zionism so well to an audience in the 60s and early 70s, and he spoke the truth and he spoke truth to power and held the, the Israeli government and the whole state accountable, it terrified the state. And the fact that they had to send out the um, Mossad secret agent to implant a bomb in his car just to silence him, just says a lot about what this state is trying to do to sort of keep their Zionist project alive. And while it's extremely unfortunate we lost Hassan Kanafani at that time, he was only about 37 or something, or 36 when he was killed, he was very young. I just I just want to imagine how much different, how different the world would be had he stayed alive and how if he, if he kept on telling the truth. I mean, we, we started to see that recently with Muhammad al-Qud, the poet from East Jerusalem, he was all over the headlines for um, advocacy for Sheikh Jarrah and his twin sister, Muna, who was doing the same thing, but in the Arabic language media. We saw him, both of them, actually, just holding the, the state accountable and constantly. And, you know, they were named the most influential people in the Time 100 list in 2020, 2020 or 2021. So that just goes to show how powerful they are and how and the fact that they only use their words, their, their writing, their they use no force whatsoever, but and they did peaceful protests. Just goes to show how much more effective it is, it, how effective it can be in grabbing the world's attention, in highlighting injustices, than it is to sort of just use force. 
And even just with the assassination of, of uh, Shireen Abu Atli, the, um, the Al Jazeera journalist, even though she specialised in the Arabic language, in Arabic language media, the fact that she's so well regarded and she, she'd, been, she'd been reporting from the ground for decades, that assassination or the murder, sorry, I, don't, I, I realise there might be some controversial semantics around my use of the word assassination, but the fact that she was killed by Israeli forces for reporting on the ground just goes to show that the state of Israel is scared of having the truth being put out there. So I do strongly believe, and I know I'm, I've just used the Palestine context as the only example, there's so many other examples in so many different contexts around the world, not just in Palestine. And uh, I do believe that you know the word is a stronger, more powerful way of uh, highlighting truth and bringing about justice than using force. Mm. Now, your book, This Arab is Queer, is a wonderful, powerful collection of essays from the Arab LGBTQ plus community. Uh, it's been out for a little less than a year. How, how has it been received? I am really privileged to be able to say that the book has been received so well, and I'm so, so happy and pleased with that, because this is this can, it, it could have easily gone the other way around. And the fact that it didn't just really means a lot. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, look, the book has only been about being out in the UK for about eight months or nine months. And it's only been out in North America since October. So about four or five months, if my maths is correct. So still very early days. And I'm sure there are people out there who don't like it, but no one's really brought it to my attention yet. <laughs> And and that's okay. No, it's not. I'm not saying people have to like it. That people have can have their own opinions to it, and they're fully entitled to that. But from my purely anecdotal experience, I've been really lucky to say that I am really lucky to be able to say that it's been received really well. Been it was amazing to be featured in so many publications that I never thought I'd ever see myself in, like L'Orient du Jour in Lebanon, um, and Time magazine as well, and uh, even the. Uh, 972 magazine, the online English language uh, website in um, in Palestine, that's got an anti-Zionist publication as well. So it's, it's been really, really great having that journey. And I think also what has been really interesting is that more than half of the positive feedback I've been getting have been coming from Arabs themselves, whether they live in the Arab world itself or in the diaspora for you know around the world. And most of that, most of those Arabs who are coming who are coming to me with all these amazing positive responses, are straight Arabs themselves, and and I shouldn't make that assumption, obviously, but I think what what is really I just want to highlight that because it really turns that stereotype on the head of this, this particular stereotype that I've just thrown at me all the time the moment I say I'm Palestinian and gay or I'm Lebanese and gay or Arab gay whatever. I get I get thrown this stereotype at me all the time in the sense that you know oh try being gay in you know in Gaza try being gay in in uh, Saudi Arabia or try being gay here or you know try having a pride parade in Damascus or try having a pride parade with, with, with ISIS and all these stupid awful racist stereotypes and even some simple things and people just assume that my family doesn't accept me which is not the case or they might assume that my community does not accept me because of this homophobic prevalence in the community which does exist i'm not i do not want to deny it the, the prevalence of homophobia in the arab community does exist but it's not everyone is homophobic and i think we have to acknowledge that there's a diverse range of views and there's a diverse uh we're, we're not a homogenous monolith so having people come to support me and that just turns that stereotype on the head and really challenges 
people in the sense that, oh, okay, well, well, you know, what are we going to do now? <laughs> and yeah, it's just, it's just, it's been really nice. It's been really nice. You've spoken about the power of the word holding uh, truth to power. What about music? I'm asking that because one of the essays is by Hamid Seno, the lead singer of Mashru Lela. Tell us a little bit about Mashru Lela and, and the essay that Hamid wrote for This Arab is Queer. So Mashru Lela is a well-known um, pop band from Lebanon. Their lead singer Hamid just happened to be openly queer and their whole music journey has been very much about challenging the political ruling class and challenging societal norms, which shouldn't be normal. So they're very much, a, a in some way, they appeal to the younger generation, like the millennials and Gen Z, who are trying to, who are trying to break free from the, the autocratic, the conservative tribal mentality of the, rural, of the ruling class. And also at the same time, trying to challenge uh, ridiculous patriarchal traditions or norms within their own families and communities. Their songs tap into that and just sort of and really challenge all these norms. But at the same time, their songs also talk about love and romance, about going out on a big night out in Beirut and stuff. So it's not they're not just political. They they do have the full they do have the full range and be able to perform a variety of songs, a variety of themes. And the fact that the the vast majority of their songs it wasn't until they just before they disbanded that they started performing in English, but the vast majority of their songs from the day they they uh, formed up until the day uh, the day they disbanded it was all performed in Arabic, and I think that terrified the authorities because this is suddenly this language that everyone speaks in their countries suddenly the young people are having access to a library of songs that challenges these authorities. And so this is what kind of what happened with Mashrut Layla over the years. They got banned from performing in Egypt. They got banned from performing in Jordan. They got banned from performing in so many Arabic speaking countries. And also they even got, uh, had a bit of a run in with authorities in Lebanon in their own country for one of the biggest music festivals there. I think in Biblos or Jbel, the religious authorities stepped in and sort of tried to stop them from being part of the lineup. Quite often the media headlines around them being banned from specific countries is because of um, Hamid just happened to be openly queer and some of his songs do tap into that queer identity. And and this is exactly, this is exactly why he was, uh, why the band was banned from performing in Egypt in, a couple of years ago. And this is why they had running with authorities in Lebanon. But every other country, the reason for their bans, is, I think I, I don't want to assume the, the reasons, but uh, yeah, the fact that they, make authorities petrified that there's someone who's living their truth and living their best life and singing about it and having a group of uh, straight men supporting him with that with the with, with great musicianship and just seeing them so successful in the Arab world and also overseas in the, in the diaspora they they performed in London they performed all over Europe they performed all over North America just really really does uh, challenge the the propaganda or press release machines of these autocratic governments. And yet, Ilias Hamid announced last September that Mashrulela was being disbanded and he cited anti-LGBTQ plus abuse. Is yeah, it a case yeah, then yeah. of one step forward, two steps back, given the current drift towards authoritarianism and illiberalism? Look, that's really, really hard to say. 
because obviously I don't live there, so I can't really give you an accurate picture of what it's like to be queer living there full time in this community, in this society, in this political context. But yes, we do have to acknowledge the fact that it did get really difficult for Hamid, especially, had constantly been in the centre of this uh, homophobic storm uh, every time Ham Mashrut Leila was in the headlines. And it's really, really frustrating. I feel frustrated for them on that it had to happen because these media outlets in the Arab world just, just constantly pander to whoever's giving them money to keep these media outlets going. And or, or quite often these billionaires and or oil tycoons were funding these media outlets do have specific political lines that they have to follow. And they're almost always homophobic, almost always homophobic or transphobic. So um, it's really frustrating to see and sad to see that, that they endured that. But and in, in some ways it might be seen as, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But I just feel like looking at the legacy that Mashrut Leila has left behind, I think that is far more important than just the idea of them disbanding. And, you know, power to the ban for for deciding to disband. I mean, even even that, that announcement that Ham had put, placed last in September last year when they were disbanded, um, that was just an official announcement. They had they hadn't been producing any music for a couple of years up until that point. So in some ways they had disbanded two years prior. They just never really made it official up until it was announced in September that year. So power to them in the sense that they wanted to look out for themselves, look after their mental health and, you know, just take some time for themselves and take a break from being constantly in the centre of a media storm all the time just for purely existing or for, for, for being talented. You know, obviously self-care is more important than anything. But at the same time, I think what we as listeners and fans have to do is remember the legacy they've left behind and the, and the, the hope that they offered in, through their songs. and hope of uh, of a better future of a more progressive future that that we as Arabs are definitely capable of and what Mashallah later did it's just one example of many that proves that we as a society do have the do have the capability of being progressive and of being of having a better future and it's just a matter of building on that uh, going forward so two steps forward one step back or one step forward two steps back I, I'm not sure um, okay. I think it's a bit more nuanced than that Okay. Uh, now, finally, Elias, I want to ask you about food. I know you celebrate all things to do with food, uh, as do I. So can food be part <laughs> of the experience of liberation? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, for me, this is me personally, but I feel like I can, how I sort of communicate my culture to other people or how I, um, I guess communicate probably the best way to say it, how I communicate my culture to other people, how I show, how I bring people into my life. One of the, I mean, food is a love language for me, full stop. Whether it's Palestinian Lebanese food or no matter what type of food, it's the love. It's, it's one of my love languages, and being able to express that love language with other people, yes, I think that's a very liberating thing to do. So. And there was an article in the New York Times recently that just looked at uh, Palestinian food and the, the, and the rise of this uh, Palestinian restaurants and cookbooks acknowledging Palestinian food as its own thing rather than be using the vague term of Mediterranean or Lebanese, whatever. And one of the quotes there was from a, a Palestinian grandmother living in America. The quote there was saying, you know, my ancestors are in my are within my hands. But that really struck me because I feel like that is how I connect to my food, you know, 
that my ancestors are literally in my hands whenever I cook food. So I just think I am constantly thinking of my mother, my grandmother, and both of both of my grandmothers and you know their mothers as well, how they passed on these recipes and how I'm able to how I me I have the privilege of being able to cook these recipes and sh share that with other people. I think that's an extremely liberating experience because it's just their way of getting connecting with my culture and that is really important for me. And um so yes, food is definitely a form of liberation. It's not the only thing. It's just one one step among many to in, on the on the path towards liberation. And I think just acknowledging the food, acknowledging the history behind these recipes and why, the, especially in the Palestinian context, why these are so important to us, is yeah, it's just it's just, it's just one of many ways to sort of ensure that we can preserve our culture. Food for thought, Elias. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, Bill. I really appreciate it. Really good to have, really good, really good to be back. Great, great conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the writer and editor, Elias Jashan. His latest book, This Arab is Queer, is published by Saki. It's an anthology of LGBTQ plus Arab writers, which is brilliantly edited, and I cannot recommend it too highly. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 120,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring to you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Elias. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.